This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is April the 4th, 2006, the 8th of April. April is the cruelest month, yes. <laughs> Give or take a few weeks in late October. It's that ache of spring, you know, the effort to come to life again. Feel the earth underfoot, the beating of the heart, the blood in the veins. <laughs> Oh, God, the ache is in the bones now for me more than the blood. I want to turn away from all this terror, fly away to where the press does not depress us every day. Oh, great goddess, they're blowing up bakeries. Iraqi insurgents blowing up their own bread. I don't know why that bothers me so much. I mean, uh... Huh? Well, all I can think of, it's like, what is it, kindergarten, yes. Who started it? Who started it all? Who smashed that hornet's nest? Who set off this? Well, never mind. We don't worry, Condi Rice is on the job. I'm going to talk about Condi Rice Thursday morning on the morning show. Try to figure out, you know, I have this big sign over my desk. It says, it's the psychology, stupid. I guess... Psychology is one of the causes, but Condi is a complex and confusing issue anyway. Uh, today I want to escape. I want to get away from my own era, my own time. I'm one of those people who's lucky enough to do it. Yes, I want to dive back into the 19th century where I can hide. <laughs> Not that it was safe back there. Uh, Emily Dickinson had the Civil War, yes, that's a, cer certainly our saddest hour, certainly more uh, subject for grief. I don't know why people think things are worse now than they were then. It was ever thus. Anyway, in those days, uh, the people, let's see, I would say my favorites, uh, back in the uh, mid-19th century, they have to be the Brits, the Brontes, those women in Yorkshire, up in the north of England, in the bleak, bleak world. Uh, these last weeks, even here in California, the weather brings me to the mist on the moors where Emily Bronte still hangs around. You know, she's still lurking out there. She hangs out with Carl Jung. Anyway, <laughs> her soul is wandering. I always think about what Emily Bronte thinks about the war and the warriors and all their nonsense. Let me see where I put it. Here's Emily. Dear Emily, she got their number. She wrote, 
Vain. Vain are the thousand creeds that move men's hearts. Unutterably vain. Worthless as withered weeds. Or idlest froth amid the boundless main. She has a lot more, uh, what would you call that? Pessimistic poetry. <laughs> she wrote laments as opposed to praise songs. That poem is taken, that bit that I just read you is from a poem written in 1846 called No Coward Soul is Mine. Ho, ho. Emily Bronte, born 1818, died in December of 1848. She wasn't quite 30. Fantastic. Anyway, today I think I would like to read you a little bit about uh, those women, uh, those Brontes out there in the bleak parsonage. I think because mm, sometimes I feel the need to go back to, what is that, a simpler view of the world. Certainly, it was no better in that time, but it was easier to get a handle <laughs> on destruction. Emily had a pessimistic point of view. I always compare her to Werner Herzog. Um, when she was over in Brussels at a school there, she came across um, Catholicism. She said it was rotten to the core. Um, she said, yes, she said Catholicism was a most feeble, childish piece of humbug. But um, she, she, she wrote a little essay that I have kept for years. She describes in this essay a forest scene. And she's trying to describe what she calls natural order. And she finds not order in nature, but insanity. Uh, she writes, Life exists on a principle of destruction. Every creature must be the relentless instrument of death to the others or himself cease to live. The universe appeared to me a vast machine constructed only to bring forth evil. Then an ugly caterpillar turns into a splendid butterfly. And this is a vision of the world to come and so forth, and suffering is seed for a divine harvest, and harmony can and must be created out of chaos. <laughs> anyway... Um, I think she she obviously has that, what is that wonderful expression? Uh, she's not optimistic, but she does have hope. Uh, her work, I find to be an explosion of the unconscious. Uh, I did my master's in Emily Bronte along with Gertrude Stein. I remember the professors were upset that I put them in the same basket, but <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have a problem with that. Uh, I'll put aside her poems for a minute and go to an essay about uh, the Bronte women. It's in a book of my own, and it was a search for this notion that art saves lives, you know, all that nonsense. We're always saying that poetry saves our lives, when, of, of course, it is true, uh, for me, these are my literary saints, and they are a form of religion. If you think of religion as something that you practice on a daily basis, uh, something that you do all the time, William James said that was enough of a definition of 
religion uh, a practice, um, a discipline. Uh, in any case, these are my notes on the Brontes. And uh, let's see, it begins with, Oh, Emily Bronte in Mothering Heights. She says, I cannot live without my life. I cannot die without my soul. I am Heathcliff. Uh, that's a phrase that has been worried to death, the people who study anima and animus. Uh, and then another epi- epigraph from Susan Howe's book, My Emily Dickinson. She's contemplating uh, the characters of uh, uh, Emily, both the Emilies, Emily Dickinson and Emily Bronte. And she writes, Sadism knocks down barriers between an isolate soul and others. Violence forces reaction. That unity of souls may be linked to sadism is the sad riddle of the world. Now, uh, you uh, may have noticed, those of you who did read your Emily Bronte, your Wuthering Heights, that her male characters tend to be uh, wolves. She said they are not, uh, uh, you know, uh, pearl-containing rustics. Uh, uh, she said they were uh, basically uh, wolfish, unpleasant fellows. And uh, her sadism seems to be what um, gives her book its vitality. Apparently, violence is necessary to get our attention. I will read you a little bit of this essay notes on the Brontes. Impossible to synthesize my thoughts on the Brontes. When I contemplate these Celtic colossi, well, Charlotte was only four foot nine, I catch only a glimpse of their haunted faces at the windows of that grey parsonage with its Anglican angst its alcoholism, Brother Branwell's addiction to opium, neurasthenia, isolationism, and what Charlotte herself called barbarism. Once in a dream, I was talking to Charlotte Bronte about the hot chocolate desire in her poems, demanding to know if she was orgasmic. Suddenly Emily appeared in a fury, throwing a great tomato at my head. I was terrified at first, but then she stopped, took another tomato in her hand and sliced it very fine. She threw the center slice right smack in my face, and it covered me with a blood-red cape, and the seeds turned to jewels and shone like moonstones in the dark. These Bronte sisters, Charlotte, Emily, and Anne, are fundamental touchstones for women like me, those women who imagine we can transcend our lives, that we can live through art. Under the most appalling difficulties, these women strove relentlessly to create order out of chaos. What's so special about them, of course, is that they... Pulled it off. Who were these women? Why should we care about them? They died young, not prolific. 
I remember I proposed to include Emily Bronte as a poet. This would exclude her only novel, Wuthering Heights, considered to be her major work. I wanted her listed as a poet, one of the three major authors to be studied for my oral exams for an M.A. degree back in the mid-1970s. I was informed by the academic powers that be that I might use the complete works of all three sisters Bronte and that that, that study would constitute one major author. <laughs> I couldn't help think, but think of Virginia Woolf's reference in her essay, A Room of One's Own. She refers to the professor with a measuring rod up his sleeve. Footnote here. In the 70s, we, we used to say, yes, men don't think, they measure. It's like, uh, you know, what is it? you have to be, you're the number one novelist, the number two novelist, that sort of thing. I care about the Brontes because of their genius, their vision. I regret that they were exhausted by their efforts to play that role Virginia Woolf describes as angel in the house. In particular, this role, this feminine role, was anathema to Emily Bronte. And more than all the others, she was attached to the outdoors, the wild, the moors, uh, to her own sacred convictions. Uh, Emily was a Celtic seer. She worshipped the Chthonian gods, so the earth gods, while at the same time she lived outwardly the life of a Victorian Christian. She had the heart of a heathen. Now, the dictionary tells me that a heathen, pagan actually, that a heathen originally meant one who lived on the heath. That is to say, in the country. <laughs> yes, an earthy person, right, yes, an earth goddess. Uh, on December the 7th, 1838, Emily Bronte wrote, Come, sit down on this sunny stone. Tis wintry light, or flowerless moors, but sit, for we are all alone. The purple heather of Emily Bronte is the same symbol of liberty and ecstasy today that it was during her lifetime. In 1841, she wrote, Leave the heart that now I bear and give me liberty. That was seven years before her death. I'll go dust the graves. Let's see. First there was the father, Patrick Bronte, born St. Patrick's Day, 1777, native of County Down in Ireland, bog Irish. That is to say, he was a farmer, a peasant rather than what uh, has been called lace curtain Irish or landed gentry. He changed his name from Bronte, B-R-U-N-T-Y, to Bronte, <laughs> and opened a school at the age of 16. He became a tutor. He proceeded to St. John's College, Cambridge in 1802, where he obtained a B.A. degree and a curacy in Essex and finally settled in Yorkshire. Elizabeth Gaskell, in her famous biography, The Life of Charlotte Bronte, published in 1857, writes of Mr. Bronte, quote, He has now no trace of his Irish origin remaining in his speech. 
He never could have shown his Celtic descent in the straight Greek lines and long oval of his face. <laughs> Weird racism, tribalism we have everywhere. Anyway, Mrs. Gaskell met Patrick Bronte on a visit to Charlotte during the years following the deaths of all the other children. Charlotte was then living alone with her father. He only joined the two women at tea as an honor to his guest. Mrs. Gaskell writes, What he does with himself through the day, I cannot imagine. He talked at her sometimes. She adds, Mr. Bronte bears a great fancy for firearms of all kinds. This little deadly pistol sitting down to breakfast with us every morning. She noted that Mr. Bronte never goes anywhere without a loaded gun. Remember the American Emily, Emily Dickinson? She wrote, My life had stood a loaded gun. Mrs. Gaskell concludes, He was very polite and agreeable to me, paying rather elaborate old-fashioned compliments. But I was sadly afraid of him in my inmost soul, for I caught a glare of his stern eyes over his spectacles at Miss Bronte once or twice which made me know my man. Mrs. Gaskell, in letters to her friends, wrote that she believed Mr. Bronte should never have married. He was apparently much in love with his wife, Maria Branwell, when he was a young, red-haired Irishman flushed with ambition, when he was a pal of Lord Palmerston at Cambridge, etc. Maria is a pale figure as a mother, she had borne six children in seven years when she died in 1821 at the age of 39. Patrick lived to be 85, dying in 1861. When Mrs. Gaskell wrote her biography of Charlotte, she was doubtless inhibited by the fact that Mr. Bronte still lived. Here is an extract from a letter. Ah. Uh, it's a letter from Mary Taylor, a friend of Charlotte's, written to Mrs. Gaskell from Wellington, New Zealand, in 1857. She's writing to uh, Mrs. Gaskell about the biography of Charlotte. Uh, Your book is a perfect success in giving a true picture of a melancholy life. You have practically answered my puzzle as to how you would give a true description of those around meaning Branwell, the self-destructive brother, as well as Patrick, the tyrannical father. Uh, Mary Taylor goes on, Though not so gloomy as the truth, it is perhaps as much so as people will accept without calling it exaggerated and feeling the desire to doubt and to contradict it. I have seen two reviews of it. One of them sums it up as a life of poverty and self-suppression, the other has nothing to the purpose at all. Neither of them seems to think it a strange or wrong state of things that a woman of first-rate talents, industry, and integrity should live all her life in a walking nightmare of poverty and self-suppression. I doubt whether any of them will. Yet Charlotte could laughingly sign her letters, Charles Thunder, Bronte means thunder. Certainly, 
Nobody stole Charlotte's thunder unless it was Emily, and that did not happen until long after both were dead. Virginia Woolf insisted Emily was the greater artist, because she left the eye out of her work. Uh, like Jane Austen and William Shakespeare, it's hard to find the author in the work. Charlotte, on the other hand, often slips up and delivers a sermon, <laughs> which has an all-too-personal ring. For my money, I do not care whether a writer hides behind her characters or speaks right through them, just so long as the writer makes me feel she, he gives a damn about what is being said. As an aside, I have to repeat what Virginia Woolf did finally grasp. That is the notion that aesthetic distance is a patriarchal plot and that all that matters is that a writer write truly without altering a hair on the head of her vision, as Wolf put it, to get back to those graves. Any sketch of the Brontes must include the deaths of the first two children, Maria and Elizabeth. They died in May and June of 1825, aged 12 and 11. The death of these two seems to have haunted the remaining four for the rest of their lives. Maria and Elizabeth had been sent to Cowan Bridge School, an institution for the genteel poor, which served as the model for Lowood, a malevolent girls' school, yes. It's the one we read about in Jane Eyre, you remember? Uh, <laughs> that horrific institution, all too real. Maria and Elizabeth had weak lungs, and there was an epidemic of typhoid fever which finished them off. Perhaps most remarkable of all is the fact that the Reverend Bronte, the father, then sent both Charlotte and Emily to attend this school, this same Cowan school, until their ill health forced him to bring them home to Haworth. It's a question of money, apparently. Patrick Bronte treated his children as if they were miniature adults. In this, he was no different from many other early Victorians. Oh, he was not in a class with the Reverend Harris Wilson, the actual founder of the Cowan Bridge School and the living model for that fictitious character, Mr. Brocklehurst. You remember, he was the headmaster at uh, the founder of Lowood School in Jane Eyre. I remember the renowned Hollywood actor, Henry Daniel. He played Brocklehurst. He bears an astonishing resemblance to the sketches Charlotte made for her book. When her publisher suggested these sketches be used as illustrations, she termed, termed them mere scribblings. While the Reverend Bronte did not subscribe to the theory so dear to the hearts of men like the Reverend Wilson, that children's clothes caught fire to teach them a lesson, he did believe in admonishing their parents for neglect. In a letter entitled Cremation, which was published in the Leeds Mercury, he very sensibly points out that, quote, I have performed the funeral service over ninety or a hundred children who were burnt to death in consequence of their clothes having taken fire. And he goes on to state that they were, in every case, clothed in cotton or in linen. He recommends silk or wool. Unfortunately, 
The Reverend Bronte's nurturing effects on behalf of his own children had rendered them mute by the time the youngest, Anne, was about four. The father used the device of a mask in order to persuade his children to express themselves freely. Mrs. Gaskell quotes Patrick Bronte. He said, yes, I began with the youngest, and I asked what a child like her most wanted. She answered, age and experience. I asked the next, Emily, what I had best do with her brother Branwell, who was sometimes a naughty boy. She answered, reason with him, and when he won't listen to reason, whip him. I asked Branwell what was the best way of knowing the difference between the intellects of man and woman. He answered, by considering the difference between them as to their bodies. I then asked Charlotte what was the best book in the world. She answered, the Bible. And what was the next best? She answered, the book of nature. I then asked the next Elizabeth, what was the best mode of education for a woman? She answered, that which would make her rule her house well. Lastly, I asked the oldest, what was the best mode of spending time? She answered, by laying it out in preparation for a happy eternity. Okay. <laughs> His kids, yes, ranging from four Ten, right. The oldest, Maria, yes, is the model for the character of Helen Burns in Jane Eyre. Helen is a saintly child whose patience is quite maddening. She's punished ruthlessly for untidy habits and dies more from neglect than illness. By the time this same Victorian character found her way into a Hollywood film, her vice had become vanity. Hollywood seemed to assume that the Victorians hated sex. And a prepubescent Elizabeth Taylor has her long black curls cut off and stands all night in the rain to catch her death of gold. This vision of the Victorians as sexually suppressed is just as typical today as it was in that rather lurid 1943 film. You remember the one with Orson Welles and um, Joan Fontaine. Upset my mother no end. Now, of course, it is considered a great classic. Uh, now, it's imperative to study both the harsh realities of Victorian life and to get away from the vague romantic picture which textbooks tend to settle for. I, I kept notes about things like the bills from the Cowan Bridge School. It required pinching pennies down to the last stocking. In their later years, the three Bronte sisters bought their writing paper two sheets at a time. During their infancy, their mother was nearly always bedridden. Their only escape, both physically and psychologically, was their long walks on the moors. The, what is it, the physical and uh, uh, medical uh, deprivation these girls suffered is unbelievable. And, of course, they're still uh, considered to be... Uh, some some kind of what is that um, uh, dead white yeah, dead white um, uh, English women right uh, 
I don't know why. Um, they were, of course, um, they were clergy, so they were not strictly, strictly peasants at the same time. Uh, they had to put on a front, and um, they had not much more money than uh, uh, the local laborers. They lived mostly on potatoes. Uh, let me finish with this little description uh, that Mrs. Gaskell writes. Uh, the fact that they, yes, they were all so quiet. She said the six little creatures used to walk out hand in hand towards the wild moors, the older ones taking thoughtful care for the toddling wee things, grave and silent beyond their years. Um, I have to stop this reading about the Brontes now. I was going to give you the measurements for the coffins. The biggest one was Emily Bronte, a thundering great girl at five foot two inches. And maybe next time I'll have time to read you some more. This is uh, Poetry Month, and I have poems both for a celebration of Martin Luther King and some poems by June Jordan, and I think maybe uh, I'll combine those with the work of these Victorian women. Till Thursday morning at 8.20, this has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. I'm Thunder. On Sunday, April 23rd, all day, I'll be at the people.